Hi everyone. Today I'm talking to Alex Samets, who is a psychotherapist in private practice in Baltimore, Maryland. Allie, as I like to call her, and I go way back all the way to her childhood, and we did a lot of growing up together. Join us as we talk about everything from Harry Potter to Freud. And Allie talks to us about humans being sense-making creatures and the fact that we are all infinite. Anyway, have a listen and enjoy. Hi, everyone. It's Kate, and I'm here today with Alex Samets. Hi, Alex. Hello. It's so great to have you here. And people, I'm going to give you... First of all, I'm going to come clean and say that although you are Alex Samets, <laughs> I yep. refer to you as Allie, and I will do my best to, I, you know, I don't think I can do it, Allie. Yeah, uh, I think so, you have to call me Allie. I think if you're calling me Alex, the conversation will be too weird, so. Yeah, it would be I... very weird, and we'll get into why <laughs> that is, people, when we, uh, as we, as this unfolds. But let me just give some bio on you, Allie, okay? And then we'll talk about how you and I know each other and we'll go from there. Great. So first of all, you are joining us today from Baltimore, Maryland, correct? I am. Okay. All right. So here's Allie's bio. Alex Samets is a psychotherapist in a private practice in Baltimore, Maryland. She is the co-founder of the Baltimore Center for Psychotherapy, which is a collaborative group practice in Baltimore, Maryland. Alex holds a master's in fine arts from Sarah Lawrence College, which is in New York. Am I right? It is. Yeah. Okay. And a master of social work from Smith College School of Social Work. She completed a post-master's fellowship at the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, where she trained as a family therapist. Much of Alex's work involves treatment of trauma, loss, and bereavement, depression, and relationship issues. Alex works with individuals, couples, and families, and specializes in working with people diagnosed with personality disorders and mood disorders, as well as with artists and athletes. Now, so that's quite the mouthful, Allie. Uh, (laughs) But I think one thing that's missing, which maybe we can touch on, but not yet, is you... You also, am I wrong? Didn't you work in the prison system? I did, but not as a therapist. I, so Just when for fun? My, <laughs> Sorry. So my, my, my master's in fine arts is in creative writing. Oh, that's right. And okay. Yeah. So I worked with an amazing organization called the New York Writers Coalition, uh, which brings writers into a variety of communities. Um, and I did some work leading writing workshops um, in a jail in New York. And then also when I was at Sarah Lawrence as a graduate student, I uh, facilitated a program that brought undergraduates into uh, prison to lead writing workshops. Okay. All right. So, but that is incredibly, that's probably its own podcast. So let's, let's stay the course (laughs) here now. And Allie, how do we know each other? (laughs) <laughs> so it the you know as as you asked that question I realized I don't remember the first time I met you but um we know each other because there's so many different ways to answer this but uh you are one of the people who raised me and also and also uh you were my riding coach throughout my adolescence starting I think when I was 14 um and then going maybe maybe earlier than that and then going through high school well, I know we were together through high school because I remember <laughs> all of your high school days, basically. Yep. And yep. so one of, so what happened was I was running a horse farm in Vermont that your mother eventually owned, but initially was a client at, and I was her substitute riding coach one winter when the head trainer was away, and. Linda and I became fast friends mm-hmm. and by default you became my little sister <laughs> so, and, and it's not because 
your mom was a mother figure to me is your mom is a sister, like an older sister. And cause how old your mom going to be this year? 74, 74. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to be 49 next month. And mm-hmm. you this year will be this year. I'll be 38, 38. So that's the breakdown and somebody else can do the math on that. Cause that's my trip tonight, <laughs> but it's significant either way. And mm-hmm. so through Linda's and my relationship in the equestrian world, by default, I got to know both you kids and Linda's husband, Yoram. So we definitely connected on a coach student level. You Mm -hmm. also were a working student at that farm. So there was that aspect as well. And then your mom is a go-getter like you are and incredibly uh, uh, her life is incredibly full and certainly was back then with businesses and my God, volunteering. And I mean, she was kind of the do it all woman. And it's true. Yeah. You and I spent a lot of time together. (laughs) Very much so. Yep. And one of the things that would happen sometimes is even like, I would pick you up from school or she'd drop you off at the barn. And if you were overloaded with homework and life, I think sometimes you crashed in my basement and slept for hours. And yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I have this memory of deciding to become a vegetarian and you were over for dinner and you saw what I was eating, which I think was just whatever not meat thing my mom had made, which was probably pasta. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And no vegetables. And the next day, you picked me up. You said, get in the truck. We're going to the health food store. And you took me to the health food store and basically taught me a lot about nutrition and making sure that I, I just didn't waste away on noodles for my whole adolescence. Well, and I think I absolutely must have been pulling some of that out of my ass because I had been, <laughs> I had been a vegetarian for 10 years myself as a teenager. I basically was a vegetarian. I became a vegetarian at the same age that I think you decided to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think we did it for similar reasons. Animal lovers, ethical, seemingly health, all that kind of stuff. And then... Mm-hmm. I worked at a really, really lovely health food store for years, healthy, um, healthy living in Burlington, Vermont. And so I had just kind of enough knowledge to be dangerous. And at that time, when you and I connected, I was no longer a vegetarian. And this is not a podcast, people, about nutrition or vegetarianism. Right, Allie? <laughs> right. This is, this is a podcast about an adolescent who was wasting away. Yes. <laughs> but somehow live to tell the story (laughs) and help other people along the way. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I digress. So anyway, but then when I moved to Canada, it didn't matter where I lived because I lived all over the place in new England and and you always came to see me. I would either drive to Vermont and pick you up or meet you and your mom halfway and you'd get in the car Mm -hmm. and come spend the weekend and you got to be friends with Derek and gosh, of course got to know Lila and, and so we were always connected and mm-hmm. you are someone who, although we haven't connected in person for many years, you were incredibly important to me. And I have always thought of you as my little sister. So, so there you well, go. Same. Yeah. Yeah. And so now you have this incredible professional life which you described to me when we were on our discovery call, and I am putting words in your mouth, so absolutely correct me if I am wrong, as creating a life for yourself that is endlessly vibrant and alive. Yeah, I mean, certainly I feel like that's true about sort of the life of my mind that I get to live as a therapist, because it's, I mean, People often ask what it's like to be a therapist because I think it's obviously in some ways a weird job. And really my job is to listen closely to people and feel deeply with them and think about them. And so there's just, there really is this sort of endless vibrancy and endless life or many lives inside of that. And so uh, 
in terms of the professional piece of my life, it does feel, yeah, endlessly vibrant and alive. And personally, your life has oscillated from probably feeling endlessly vibrant and alive, but also like the rest of us at, at various times in your life, in particular as a teenager, which I definitely want to touch on here, Ali, as long as you're game, uh, yeah. uh, charged and complicated. 100%. Yes. So I, as you know, uh, Derek and I have a 17 year old. And as we were chatting on the phone a couple of minutes ago, I actually got kind of verklempt thinking about you as a teenager and how long we've known each other because I can remember you when you were Lila's age now. And the trials and tribulations of being a teenager in 2020 are very similar and yet a little bit more uh, digitally oriented. I don't know, technically oriented because of the world we're in now. But the, it's the same. It's the same crap in so many ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I wouldn't wish being a teenager on anyone. Yeah, I mean, it's full of yeah. wonder, and it's full of absolute. Oh, I think charged and comp- complicated is brilliant uh, description. Which yeah, I mean, agonizing. I think would be another word. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. when we were talking before about your. I asked you, you said you felt like you were lucky given your life right now. And I said, mm-hmm. do you feel lucky or do you feel like your life right now is a result of the choices that you've made? And you had something interesting to share about that when I was asking you, is it luck or choice? Yeah. I mean, so I think where my mind went when you asked that before is that it's a combination you know I don't at all mean to say that it's just luck I think that I've worked hard I've worked hard with my schooling I've worked hard in my work on myself in my own therapy in my relationships of all kinds in my just process of self-reflection but that also there's been a tremendous amount of luck I mean certainly luck in terms of things I've had access to and privileges that I have, but also luck in that sort of the curse of my adolescence, which was tumultuous to say the least, um, was kind of transformed or was metabolized into a sense of what it's like to be a person with a mind and the curative possibilities of psychotherapy, certainly like my own experience with that is what made me want to be a therapist and also to really in a deep and felt way understand what is possible within the psychotherapy relationship. Um, And that there's luck in that. I mean, I think if I hadn't suffered in the ways that I had and hadn't been dealt some of the parts of the hand that I was dealt that we might look at and say like that sucks I wouldn't I wouldn't have struggled in ways that made me who I am and brought me to some of the things that bring me such joy and a sense of groundedness and purpose and so even though there were times when those things were incredibly painful and really did I would not have described them any other way than as a curse that now I see them as as parts of my luck you know, outside looking in, you mm-hmm. were a kid who grew up in a family of means. Mm-hmm. You took everything from dance lessons to you had your own, you always had a horse or a pony, or I should say a pony mm-hmm. or a horse, because that's how it works, people. You get your pony and then you get your horse. <laughs> you don't level start on the, on the horse and then go to the pony. But so in many ways, uh, you, you have incredibly successful parents. Uh, you grew up in a beautiful home. You have a fabulous little brother who drove you crazy like my little brother drove me crazy. And you, so outside looking in, it appears as though you had it all going on as a teenager and your parents are together. So, so many things going for you. And yet that suffering behind the scenes with regular, normal, to be expected teenage angst, along with 
additional challenges that you were up against. In many ways, you suffer that in in silence or in you suffer it alone. And I think perhaps mm-hmm. as a, a that, do you think that that how how can you speak to how that may have put you on the path, the career path that you're on now, that loneliness piece? Yeah, well, you know, I think all all of those pieces, including the of means piece, because the reality is that, like, first of all, I don't any of us can pretend that money doesn't help. And so having access to all sorts of things, you know, if if I wasn't in a family of means, I wouldn't have had access to the therapy that I've had over the years, uh, for sure. So that is, it's just, that's true. Um, and I think that it's interesting to think about the, lo- the loneliness piece. I think that I, you know, I don't know that it's that I felt lonely though. I, though I did, but I, I think it's more that because I was, so I, I don't know, for those of you following along at home, I think it might be like helpful to just, say that uh, I had a tumultuous adolescence that was tumultuous mostly for like internal reasons that got understandably labeled as like depression, anxiety, mood related stuff, which I think it's, it's, it's tough business diagnosing adolescence with anything because there's so much that's going on naturally in that developmental time. But, um, and that, that sort of set me on a path of having a bit of, of it, having a diagnosis of a mental illness and being treated for that mental illness. And that's really shaping a lot of how I understood my suffering and how I set about alleviating my suffering. And that as, you know, obviously I'm a therapist, I believe mental illness is real. And also as I grew and healed, I, it, it became pretty clear that what I'd experienced was some relational trauma, developmental trauma that, once it was metabolized and came to be understood, did not leave me with any mental illness symptoms. So, you know, all humans suffer. Being a human is largely about suffering. And um, so I am not saying that I don't still suffer, but that I would not, I don't think about my suffering in that way anymore, um, in that particular frame. But I think that there's something about, um <clears throat> the way in which what I was experiencing as a child and adolescent that led to my suffering was a kind of isolation in my mind because I had parents who were very and are very devoted to one another. Um, For them, having kids was sort of not that they're not wonderful and devoted parents, but we were sort of incidental to their love that, that, that we were not the project they were doing. Um, And then there were some pretty significant losses early on that, you know, I think as a culture, we understand a lot more now about how kids function within families and what kids need when there are big life events. And I think that that just wasn't really on the radar when my brother and I were kids. Um, And so while these big, sort of earth shattering, life changing losses were happening in our family system. Theo, my little brother and I were, I mean, we were always cared for, but psychically, I think we were alone. We were really adrift within that process. So even if you were at horseback riding lessons in karate, there's that, there's that other piece where you are getting what you need, but to, to just out this a little bit, there was some death and dying of family members in your, when you were little, that was pretty big deal. And yeah. Yeah. And it, and being a very driven entrepreneurial woman and mother myself, I understand that piece where you have kids and you still have a passion or a career or, or big goals, things that you want to accomplish. And so um, it is with a lot of, empathy I I understand that and I think that that was kind of one of those things that I know your mother she's my best friend she's no earth mother (laughs) and that's okay (laughs) neither am I you know uh but uh it's definitely 
I think when you are as a teenager, isn't it true, Allie, that there's, what is it, the Rorschach test? If they give it to teenage girls and then you hand it over to a psychiatrist and they look at the results, but they don't know the age of the person who took the test, they'll tell you that the person's a psychopath or something like that. (laughs) I've never heard that, but I believe it. Oh, yeah. So have you read the book? I completely believe it. Have you read the book Untangled by Lisa DeMoore? No, I haven't. Oh, Allie, you have to read it. So it's called Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. And she talks about it. I can't find the exact quote, but I'm pretty sure it's the Rorschach test, right? Where you go and you... you The ink blots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. anyway, she speaks to this, this, this kind of craziness that teenage girls, and I'm sure teenage boys go through to a certain extent. But if you give your average teenage girl the Rorschach test, And then you hand off the results to a psychiatrist who does not know that it was a teenage girl who took the test. When they see the results, they will say, well, this is the, this is, this person is a psychopath (laughs) and it's a teenage girl. So Mm -hmm. I had a great conversation with my daughter recently, just sharing that information with her. Cause I think there is, and I think many of us, teenage, male, female, doesn't matter go through periods of our lives where we think we are losing our minds, right? So, or we wonder Mm -hmm. about our, our sanity, or we wonder about our, whatever it is, we wonder about how much we work. We wonder about how much we drink, right? We wonder about those things. And uh, yeah. So anyway, um, I don't know what took me there, but I'm just, just thinking about you as a kid. And so I want, I guess I wanted to say two things. One, it was a death and dying piece that, that was, huge and I remember this um I came in at the very end of that but I I do know those Mm -hmm. that that was big for you kids and your parents run businesses and then the other thing is that based on your experiences as a teenager there were periods where you were really truly suffering and I know that as your friend and kind of um gosh part of the family if you will I, yeah. I, I, I didn't know if you would, I didn't know if you would make it. Yeah. I mean, it's true. When I turned 30, frankly, it was a big surprise. I just, there, it, there was so much, I was a person who experienced a tremendous amount of psychic pain. And I think that, you know, obviously how could all of that not inform my choice of profession and then also not inform how I, how I do my profession, how I practice, but also I think there's, it's very much the case that in my immediate family, there was a lot of suffering of all different kinds, psychic suffering, much of it inherited from everybody's parents. And that this thing happened in my family that happens, I would say probably in every family where I was the person who exhibited the suffering and that we can think about in lo- in lots of ways, like that I was the identified patient, but also that sort of, or I was the canary in the coal mine where you see the suffering in one person and then the whole family system gets to locate the suffering there and try to address it there. And what, so one person is doing all of the work to move the suffering through, to metabolize the pain, to make meaning of it. And that, you know, it's not, I don't think it's a coincidence that my suffering receded and I became a much more functional and alive person when I insisted that everyone else in my family go to therapy and that <laughs> every everybody else sort of stepping in to take their portion of the suffering because it's, it's not just suffering, it's also work, right? I mean, I'm saying that I feel lucky that I had those experiences partially because they led me into transformative experiences of self-reflection, transformative relationships uh, with therapists and with other people where I was connecting around what I had experienced. And so part of what happens when you make a shift within a system is that everybody else gets to do the work too. And that, that even though that dynamic where one person takes on all the symptoms, all the pain so that the rest of everybody doesn't have to, it, it seems like it's alleviating something for everybody else, but it's actually sort of 
taking everybody else's power and everyone else's agency to be in relationship with their own history, their own psyche, their own desires and needs that are unfulfilled. You know, when you talk about that, it's like people focusing on work. I'm just going to use something a bit more innocuous. So not that yeah. it's not a killer too, but like, it's like people uh, or volunteering. I'll use work and volunteering so we can appeal to both types of people who might be listening. So if it's, let's say you love your job, you're really good at it, and it's an important job. Not that there aren't any important jobs, but you feel it's important and it's noble work. But many people use that as an excuse to not deal with their personal lives. Conversely, mm -hmm. people will do that with volunteering. They will volunteer, 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 and martyr themselves right into the ground because <laughs> they won't look at, for, for example, their home life that is kind of a mess, right? Or, mm -hmm. and I've, I've had clients do this with reading. It's like they're always off the because they're reading. So they're and they're, you know what I mean? Like they don't have to come to family dinner. They don't have to have a conversation. They don't have to clean the house. They don't have to go exercise because they're, they're busy reading. Right. So, uh, whereas if you, if you actually buck up and do the work, as you were saying, it's, I mean, it's flipping work. Uh, yeah. When we were chatting on the phone before, I told you that I thought that we could all reach Oprah status if we could answer this one question, which is why, when we know better, don't we choose to do better? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because I just thought about that point in our previous conversation when you were saying this analogous thing about about work and volunteering or reading because I think that that well your point remains true that actually there's something really there's something different and more complicated that's happening when that sort of drawing of focus to one person in a system takes place and by system I, I mostly mean family though it happens in other kinds of systems too but um where and probably everyone listening has had the experience, right? I mean, if you want to make it less charged, maybe of being in a workplace where there's one person who's the problem and whether that person is difficult or annoying or lazy or whatever, and there's a lot of focus on that person. And then finally the issue gets resolved. That person gets fired, say, and then suddenly there's a new person who's the issue. And that that's because groups of people function to stabilize and to, uh, to perform psychic functions for and with each other all of the time outside of our awareness. And I do, I do think that there's a way in which that role of assigning all of the psychic work to one person happens in a family system unconsciously where everyone is participating in how the psychic labor gets distributed. Um, which then brought me to that, to, to what you just said, which is that I think we, my understanding through my, my work is that the reason that when we know better, we can't do better is that we have unconscious minds that are enormous and powerful and are really, they're really driving the bus way more than we think they are. And certainly they're more powerful than our unconscious minds because all of us, right, we know better and we can't do better. It happens with all sorts of things all the time. Can you share your T-Rex uh, yeah, T-Rex yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. I I keep a sort of a toy T-Rex in my therapy office um, because Tyrannosaurus Rex, dinosaur. Yes, yeah, a dinosaur. Um, because I find that his anatomy really speaks to the anatomy of the mind, as I understand it, which is that the unconscious mind is sort of the tremendously powerful hind end and tail of the T-Rex that's driving everything. And then we can think about the conscious mind as the sort of use, relatively useless, tiny front arms of the T-Rex. Um, you know, our conscious minds are, are, they're what we've got access to, um, but our unconscious minds are, where all of our unmet needs are and where they're, and so there's striving happening there. That's where all of our desire is. So that's another kind of striving. And so we, we simply cannot control our powerful Tyrannosaurus Rex hind end and tail with our Tyrannosaurus Rex little front arms. 
So then we're left to perhaps continue to lick our wounds and be addicted to suffering. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think, I think the answer is no, because I think that what we can do is have greater access to our unconscious minds. We can understand that we have an unconscious mind. We can learn more, even if we can never see fully what's happening in there, we can learn more about what are some of the dynamics from our lives, especially our early lives, not to sound like a New Yorker cartoon of a therapist, but certainly from our early lives and our important early caregiver relationships. What are some of those dynamics that are showing up again and again in our relationships? Um, And what are some of the, the needs and wounds that we are, I don't know if we're licking them so much as we're trying to do all sorts of things. We try to recreate situations where we failed or were unmet so that we can have new chances to succeed or be met in our needs and desires. Uh, So understanding more about what's going on in there and having just more, more access to self-knowledge, more capacity for reflection, I think really changes the relationship we have with this question of, I know better, why can't I do better? So do you think that that applies to things like, and I realize it's a big question, but addiction as well? I think that it gets very complicated with addiction because there's the added biological component with addiction. Okay. Um, I certainly think that there are many, many ways that we can understand the pull of all sorts of things, including including substances, but certainly including the kinds of things that we often refer to as addictions, but are maybe not quite so biological as substance addiction. Um, so addiction to technology, uh, that, that kind of thing. We can certainly understand the unconscious mind as having a huge role there, but I, you know, and I, I don't think that it serves us necessarily to try to make a distinction between our like physical bodies and our minds, because obviously our minds and bodies, our minds are part of our bodies. But um, so I would say, I would say yes. And also that it gets very complicated. Okay. I'll let you off the hook with that. So yeah. I have, I have, so the next thing I want to circle back to is I want to talk about how important and this important is my word, obviously, Uh, but I think you share some of the same sentiments. I want to talk about the importance of generational relationships that are non-familial. Do you know what I mean? So I, okay, I'll just give a real life example that's happening for me right now. And then perhaps you can speak to it both maybe personally, if you wish, and then professionally, if you would touch on it. So Mm -hmm. my daughter, our daughter, Lila, she changed high schools last fall and it was like an impromptu decision. She did the, she did the research alley. And then she just decided literally halfway, halfway through the first day of grade 11, which is junior year in the U S in high school, she literally on via text with the principal of the other school, who is a family friend and, and client of mine, she decided to go to the other school. So, so I, pick her, uh-huh. I pick her up from her one high school that she's been at for heading into her third year. And the next morning, I take her to a new high school. And then one of the things that she's been able to do is she's been able to, thankfully, just because of, of the location and proximity and all that kind of stuff, ride in with this uh, adult friend who is also the principal. And they've had some great conversations all within scope of practice and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I think this, this one, Karen is incredibly professional, but just, it's been really useful for Lila to have another adult Mm -hmm. she could talk to and just about anything from, gosh, I'm not sure about this class to uh, getting her license, something simple stuff like that. Not even big, heavy stuff, uh, let alone partying and all that kind of stuff that comes with being a teenager And so I think that that was 
partly one of the reasons why, and then I drive her to school and now she's due to get her license. And I had to reassure her that she could still periodically, if the spirit moved her, Allie, go into school with Karen or myself because she likes that time. We think that they don't want to spend time with us, but they actually do. And Mm -hmm. it's been very important for Lila throughout her life to have other adults that she could uh, connect with. And conversely, for her to connect with other little people, whether it's cousins that are younger than she or just Uh, volunteering in schools for kids that are younger, that kind of stuff has been really important. Can you speak to that Mm -hmm. idea of generational uh, friendships, friendships or relationships? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think that like, if I think about our relationship and the way that when I was an adolescent, you, you were my friend, like that is probably the word. And also I was a kid. And so I couldn't drive till you taught me how to drive, you know? So there are, there were caregiving elements, but one of the things that I think was happening then that I understand now looking sort of reflectively at my own life, but also thinking about the work that I do with adolescent patients and what I know about child development as a therapist, that it's actually vitally important for teenage people to move away psychically from their parents and that some of that process includes resentment, contempt, frustration, the things that make teenagers often quite brutal to the older people in their lives, even though just temporarily brutal, um, that even though that's really painful, important developmental things are happening where the teenage person is coming to understand themselves as separate from their families, as independent, as having their own sense of self that is differentiated uh, from who their families are, what their families expect of them and starting, you know, it's, it's important identity formation stuff and it cannot happen without some acrimony that the, the acrimonious feelings towards one, toward one's, parents and family help in that differentiation process, even though those feelings and how they're expressed can be tremendously painful. And so I think that from, from, in my experience, having, you know, a lot of teenagers do that work, that psychic developmental work through their peer relationships, which is, is essential, but that because I had this, the gift of having someone in my life who was not my peer, but also not my parent who was old enough to provide care and have some perspective uh, that my, my peers did not have, uh, but also was not aligned with my parents, um, not sort of an extension of them, but really offering like a different texture to how I was going through that process, that it did have a quality looking back at it for me of like a kind of rescuing. And I think about that in my, in my professional work, I think that for adolescents having, you know, whether that takes the form of a teacher or a coach or a therapist, that having an adult who is there to sort of just be in your mind with you as an adolescent and help you make sense of it, help you, um, you know, as humans, we are sense-making creatures. And in adolescence, we do not have the fully formed frontal lobe. And so our sense-making capacity fluctuates. And so having an adult who can provide their mind to think about us and with us as adolescents, but who are not kind of in the same position as parents, they're, they're not invested in the exact same way. They don't, they haven't had it a fantasy about what you were going to do with your life since birth. You know, there, there's more room for separating and being an independent individual that that is, it's essential developmentally. It's funny when I roll the tape back and I think about that time period, one of the things that was very important to me then, and is actually still very important to me now as a coach and I always tease Allie that 
I have very intimate exchanges with my clients, but I don't drink beer with them. So what I mean is that as a nutrition fitness coach, I need to know if you are moving. I need to know if you're going to retire. I want to know if you're taking your mom to chemotherapy. I need to know that you blew out your left shoulder in high school, those kinds of things. Right. Mm-hmm. But, and one of the things that I remember about that time with you was it was very important to me to make sure that although I always had your safety at the forefront of my mind, but that our relationship, I never reported to your mother. I always, Mm -hmm. I kept it. I felt like a vault. I felt like it was very important to me that I was not just (laughs) relaying everything, all of our exchanges to your mom. And, Mm -hmm. and I feel like that is something that, people need is is you need someone who's on your side but they're not going to they're not necessarily your therapist they're not family they're not your friends um although we were in my mind family and friends in many ways but that's the place that I like to serve people now is I I like to be that vault within the scope of my practice uh and I refer 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 trust me (laughs) but um, (laughs) but um I feel like that was really important is that I, and it's like putting on different hats and I want to talk about that with you here in a second too. But so for example, if I was with you, I was connecting with you. And then when I was chatting with your mom, and this was also true through your twenties, quite frankly, and and some of your early thirties that I would just listen with your mom, but that it was separate. Right. It's like being yeah. I felt like the middleman in many ways, because there were times when I was like, I, I especially when I became a mother, I I so deeply empathized with your mom when you were struggling. But I also as a daughter and as a mother, I would think. I would just I would I would empathize so deeply with you. Because mm-hmm. do, you know what, do you know what I'm getting at? I'm kind of stammering here, but I'm just trying to say that I think it's very important to have someone that you can trust who sees both sides so that you're there they're, because it wouldn't have done you any good if I didn't have any compassion for your mom. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think you're, you're saying some things that the tendrils of which are, you know, making me want to just like make a plug for psychotherapy in a general way. Because I think if I think about my own experience, you know, I don't look back on my childhood and adolescence and think about it as a time where I was in conflict with my mom. You know, that can be what is painful about adolescence for many people, but that, but that, you know, I, I had a very long psychotherapy through my twenties in which I barely talked about my mom. That was just not the relationship or the sort of data that we were looking at in terms of thinking about who I am and how I, how I function. And then in the therapy that I've been in, I've been in another long therapy with a different therapist in my thirties. And my mom has been a central part of that. And that, that kind of touches on the, the, this thing you say, Kate, about like seasons of one's life. And that, you know, if people have access and the means to, and, and want to do deep psychotherapeutic work, that one of the benefits of doing that, even if there aren't major symptoms happening, that it's not about symptom alleviation, it's about self-exploration, is that, not to sound cheesy, but humans are infinite. There's so much inside of us. And the deeper we go, the more that we find. And just because it's deep, this goes back to what I was saying about the unconscious, just because it's deep and it takes a long time to get there does not mean that it's not showing up constantly in our lives and our relationships and who we are. And so doing the work to get into that and understand it is tremendously beneficial, I have found. Um, And I think that, you know, what you're saying about having someone who's, who's on your side and able to it's interesting because you're not, you're talking about sort of intentionally talking about not therapy, but I, it's a huge part of how I think about therapy that, that my role as a therapist is to be really with my patients, but not in a way that is villainizing the people in their lives. Because as you're saying, that doesn't 
that doesn't do anybody any good. And that part of why our relationship was so essential for me as an adolescent was because you loved my mom and really understood her. And so there were ways in which you could, you really understood some of the gaps that needed to be filled, I think. Uh, well, <laughs> one of the things I like to tease about with your mom is uh, had I not met your mom, I certainly wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now because as you know, I taught your mother how to pump gas and she gave me a few people skills <laughs> because people who think that I'm right to the point now, uh, let me tell you what, right, Allie, I'm like, this is the, I am absolutely moving at a turtle's pace uh, these days and I am uh, not nearly as blunt as I used to be. Uh, I guess I, I guess she taught me the basics of tact so and being in Canada has helped for 20 years too but because Canadians <laughs> are so damn nice um, but anyway uh, listen here's another topic do you have a few more minutes I just want to talk on something else yeah of course okay. so yeah. the other thing that I find when I was thinking about you and I was uh, one of the things I like to do is I like to think about the flashes that come to me and they come to me in the shower, as I know they do to other people. Sometimes flashes will come to you in the middle of the night. Allie, you and I have both cleaned enough stalls, horse stalls. Uh, sometimes, yeah. the, sometimes the flashes come to you, come to you when, you're, when you're shoveling manure. But one of the flashes that came to me uh, when I was thinking about chatting with you is this idea that just because you're talented in something doesn't mean you shouldn't pivot if the spirit moves you you are an incredibly gifted beautiful writer and you were an incredible dancer and yet now you have this blossoming practice in psychotherapy how did you what brought you to pivot because I love hearing about people's pivots because to me that's life right <laughs> yeah yeah, you know, it's interesting because in some ways it, it doesn't feel like a pivot. And I think that that is I sort of have two uh, parallel explanations for that. One is that in my work as a writer, I was, um, I primarily was a fiction writer. And I think that the task of writing fiction, the task of reading fiction is to deeply commit oneself and be invited into someone else's internal world and to try to really deeply understand that. And that's the same task of being a therapist. And so I think that my training as a writer and my interest in writing and in fiction uh, very much, I think I see it as sort of a part of my training to be a therapist. And I see that I experience my training as like a, as a, reader is with me as I sort of read the text of my patients' lives. Um, and that work of being a writer and stretching myself into someone else's internal world is also the task of the therapist, I think. Um, and so in that way, I don't think of that as a, as a pivot. And also, you know, a lot of my training as a dancer was in improvisation. And I think about sort of the concepts and theories that inform dance improvisation are very much present in the therapy room um, in terms of thinking about, you know, there, there are these two minds that come together and what happens as they come together and collaborate is really different than what either of those minds would do alone or with another person. And that that is how we think about improvisational dance as well. Um, that what what I'm going to do if I dance alone and what you're going to do if you dance alone is just a totally different entity is formed if we're dancing together. And that entity is completely different than what would be formed if either of us were dancing with someone else. So, so I really see all of those things as connected. And I, I find my training and my thinking in other forms to be very present in my work as a therapist. But I also, I will say that for me, and maybe there are ways in this in which this will resonate for other people, but that even though I loved to dance and to write, and even though in many ways I was committed to the practices of both of those things, they always felt a bit 
false. Not quite like I was pretending, but like I wasn't totally dropped into them. And there was always a part of me that wasn't fully there. And, you know, it should be noted that it's very hard to make a career as a dancer or, or as a writer. And most people who practice those things don't and end up having to pursue other ways to make money and, and have a career. Uh, so that may have informed some of that sense of doubt or something that I felt that, that either of those would continue um, or be the place where I sort of totally gained traction. But I, there was this, there was this sense, even as I was really working hard in both of those things and, and deeply committed to them, that something wasn't quite aligned and there's almost no way for me to talk about it without sounding like a hippie, like that there was some sort of part of my soul, some part of my like core self that wasn't aligned, wasn't totally resonating. And that I think because I had such meaningful and transformative experiences in psychotherapy, I had a desire to be a therapist that was sort of nascent and burgeoning long before I, I made the turn in, into being a therapist. And that for me, the bridge was being a teacher that when I graduated with my MFA in creative writing, I did what most people with that degree do. And I taught English composition at a college. And, you know, the secret is that getting a degree in creative writing does not teach you how to teach people English composition whatsoever. And so (laughs) I was, I, I was really out of my depth. I was trying to teach students who desperately needed to learn to write sentences, how to write sentences. And I had no training or education in how to teach that. Um, But I am, I do love teaching and I have experience teaching and I have some sort of natural ability for teaching, I think. And I was relying on that and finding myself really appreciating my connections with my students and thinking, you know, I don't like the part where I have to grade their papers, but I do like the part where I sit and talk to them. And so I applied to social work school. You know, and that is where circling back to feeling endlessly vibrant and alive, because I can hear the energy in your voice when you talk about what you know and what your work is now and that makes a lot of sense as opposed to charged and complicated which I'm sure you know (laughs) grading people's compositions was so a quick question for you and it's probably not a quick answer but uh is it is it possible you said that as a fiction writer that it's an opportunity to uh put yourself in others shoes if you will but is it also the opportunity to look at the body and tail of the trx yeah um i like that you said trx instead of T-Rex. oh god that's funny uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually speaking you know what's of the really funny is that some yeah. people call it t-rex class oh gosh that's terrible but yeah so yeah uh, so what is it's it? a beautiful example of how the unconscious mind works actually. <laughs> it's just perfect oh my god okay so the t-rex thank you for that yes god bless you go on okay i think you know i think you're picking up what i'm putting down go ahead yeah so Absolutely. I mean, in so many different ways, right? I mean, I think one of the ways that we can get a glimpse into our own unconscious mind is when we make things, whatever it is that we make, we, we reveal things about what's going on inside of our minds that we might not have access to. And then when we make something and that something is out in the world, we get to look at it and we get to see things about ourselves, things that came from within us that we didn't know. Uh, we didn't intend to put them there and then there they were just like you didn't intend to say TRX no. and then you did, you know, that, that we put, we put parts of ourselves into what we do, into our relationships, into how we present ourselves. And then, and we really get to look at that when we make things. And so certainly in, in terms of being, I think one of the things about being an artist, being a writer is that you, you make something, you write something, and then you get to look at it and see parts of yourself that you didn't even know about. Um, And I also think that there's something about the task of stretching one's mind 
to imagine someone else's mind, someone else's unconscious, someone else's formative experiences that shape one's mind and life and relationships, um, that task necessitates a kind of parallel exploration of oneself, even if it's not, even if you're not doing it intentionally, even if you're not thinking about it consciously, that in order to value the formative experiences of your characters, you must understand something about the formative experiences that you've had, right? To think about, you know, in a, in a writing class, uh, you'll, uh, you'll hear a lot about motivation. Does, what, what's the character's motivation? And that in understanding that that's an important element of character and it also drives plot, we have to understand that that's an important element of our own characters and is driving the plot of our own lives. Not because we wake up in the morning and we say, this is the story I'm going to write today. Like that, that's silly. That's not how life works. You know, we do get to make choices. We do absolutely get to say and decide things about how we want things to go. But also we are in the middle of a life that's being lived all of the time. And what drives us within that life uh, is often out of our awareness, but essentially important. I'm taking a note here, but I want to I want to say that in case you didn't pick up on why Allie and I were well, why I was laughing at myself and Allie was laughing at me. Um, it TRX is a, a piece of fitness equipment that we use in our barn here at Custom Fit, and it's just a suspension strap that you can do all kinds of funky uh, body weight strength training on. And of course, T Rex is a flipping dinosaur. But interestingly enough, I actually <laughs> wrote down. TRX, but earlier in my notes, I wrote down <laughs> T-Rex. So it's, I don't know, it's pathological. What can I say? So um, you just said something neat. And then I have three questions for you. You said, okay, uh, well, two things. You said that we are driving the plot of our own lives, uh, but it's mm-hmm. not that we, we, we don't wake up in the morning and think that way necessarily. And then you said that we're all in the middle of a life that's being, and what did you say? Cause then I, I think I just said we're all in the middle of a life that's being lived. That's being lived. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, it's just so simple, but it's just, it's profoundly true. Um, yeah. So can I ask you, I like to wrap these things up with three questions. Are you game? Yeah. Okay. So I'm interested and we are interested in, three things and they are what are you listening to lately what are you loving lately and what are you learning and there are absolutely no rules for this so this can be point form it can be short narrative whatever you want but what are you listening to be it music podcast yourself doesn't matter what are you loving could be new shampoo could be i don't know something fabulous you just did and then what do you lately because i know you're <laughs> I mean, you are a lifelong scholar here, but like, what are you learning? So listen, love, learn in any order you wish. Oh, I love these questions. Okay. What I'm listening to is I'm re-listening to the Harry Potter books ah, as audiobooks, nice. which for people who haven't listened to them, they are just wonderful. Uh, the, the audio performance is amazing. And I have, I've read them and listened to them many times and I love them because uh, I like to, I like audiobooks. I like to go on a little vacation in my mind. It's a nice way to do that without watching television. And one of the things about the Harry Potter books is that they're really, they're books about trauma and resiliency and how early trauma shapes our expectations about how people will relate to us and how uh, contemporary relationships give us opportunities to heal from that and create new expectations. Wow. Um, so that's what I've been listening to. Uh, what I've been loving, uh, I know. So I have a, I have a dog named Lyra who is now, she just turned 13 and yeah, so she's, she's in, I think what we call the golden years. And so I've been really loving her and I, it's been really for anyone who has an animal, obviously, you know, that it's such a, it's such a gift. And I think of Lyra as sort of my heart externalized from my body. And she, she comes to work with me. So we've been spending a lot of time together and I've been really loving her and appreciating her uh, in some new ways as she ages. And 
what was the third one of my learning? Um, so I am in a training program for psychoanalysis, which is psychoanalysis is the method, the sort of original method of psychotherapy and kind of quintessentially was uh, cre- created by Sigmund Freud. And um, it, it looks very different now than it did then for people who feel terrified or judgmental when they hear that. Um, uh, but I, so I'm in this training program and it's really about very deep, intensive, relationally focused psychotherapy. And, uh, for the past several months, we've been kind of doing a Freud deep dive. So I've been reading a lot of Freud that I'd never read before. And because, so there, there are lots of ways in which Freud's work gets, dismissed um, because it was so situated in a time um, that makes it somewhat irrelevant now. But one of the things that's been really fun in this learning process is how many of his ideas are still present in the contemporary practice of psychotherapy and also just in how all of us, like they're just completely ubiquitous in our sort of modern contemporary conceptualization of humans and how we are and how we relate. And so that has been a really exciting learning. Well, that really runs the gamut. (laughs) (laughs) And that is partly why I love you. So from Harry Potter to, of course, as you know, I'm a hardcore animal and dog lover. And then to Freud, from Harry Potter to Freud, people, here you have it. (laughs) Alley cat, Samus in a nutshell. Oh, my God. Um, okay, I don't even know what to say. That's fantastic. <laughs> Top to bottom. Okay, so here's my question. How would somebody uh how would somebody learn more about you? What's the website for your um fantastic new practice? So my practice is uh the Baltimore Center for Psychotherapy and our website is Baltimore Center for Psychotherapy.com. And I also have a website that's just my name.com, Alex Samets. Um, yeah, those are the best ways to learn more. Okay. About me and what I and do. are you doing any, like, is it, is any of your writing accessible for anyone who is interested to see your style as a writer? Not really. I mean, I think if you, if someone were so inclined and wanted to do a, a deep Google, that there would probably be some things, but no, not really. Okay. Do you remember that piece that you wrote? It was a short, almost stream of consciousness. Uh, and it was, and I just forgive me. I mean, I honestly, I just had to be almost 20 years ago. So, but I, I remember how the piece made me feel, but I think it's about, I think it was about Mary. Do you remember this? I don't. Okay. And I mean like About- Jesus, Joseph and Mary. You don't remember that? Oh yeah. Yeah, I do. Yes, yeah, so that that is a story I wrote in graduate school. I don't know that it I don't know that it went anywhere. I don't know that it is online. Got it. Went somewhere with me. But uh <laughs> um, uh yeah, I've just I don't know. I'm just thinking about bits and pieces of your work that I've read over the years that either I have gotten through you or that your proud mother has forwarded to me. Uh, and that <laughs> is one that I just remember. It's not very, it's very short, but it's just yeah. the style in which it is written is uh, it's, it's, it was breathtakingly beautiful to read. So anyway, okay. Uh, Thanks. Anything else Thanks. you'd like to say? I'm so glad you were willing to do this with me. It's just, I, I'm sitting here. I'm taking. I've taken tons of notes. I have so many more questions, but I don't know. I mean, what do you do? Like people like us, Allie, we move. I think this will, this I will be how we wrap this up today. But you, you, <laughs> yeah. people like you and I, we can go. We can cover so much ground. It's so fast, and it doesn't. It it doesn't feel like work. But I realize for some people, it's exhausting. Like we can be exhausting. It, would you would you agree? And I mean that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I certainly that is feedback that I've gotten. And me too. Um, it's like it's and, and the other thing too is we don't. There's not a lot of foreplay. We just go deep fast, right? So it's yeah. like, uh, and I like that. I like to have 
deep, meaningful conversations, even if we kind of just skim, I know we just skimmed over the surface of a bunch of these things, but I do have a deep appreciation for people who, with minds as quick as yours, your mind is so quick. And I appreciate, we chatted people, if you're still listening, that we chatted before we got on. I was like, okay, Allie, we cannot smoke these people. Like we can't just get on here and do all the insider information and the, you know, so, cause it's tough. Cause we've known each other a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for inviting me to do this. It was, it was really fun and fun to think about these things with you and fun to just reflect on these questions and topics. Okay. Listen, uh, I will, we will connect at some point again soon. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Kate. Of course be with you. All right. Thanks for listening. If the spirit moves you, share this podcast with someone that you love, or as I like to say, remotely tolerate. Also, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch and share your story, go to customfitvitality.com, hit the contact button, and I'll be in touch soon. Thanks again for listening.